Today's podcast is brought to you by Ryan, a leading global tax service and software provider that helps companies manage and minimize property taxes from acquisition to disposition and all points in between. As the firm with the most local market property tax professionals across the country, Ryan has experience in nearly every jurisdiction, unmatched by any other national, regional, or local provider. Welcome to WMRE's Common Area Podcast. This podcast is brought to you by the award-winning editorial staff at WMRE. Let's jump right into this week's podcast. Hello and welcome to The Common Area with your host, David Bodemer. Today, David has a special guest and that is Randy Blankstein. David, good afternoon. What's going on? Oh, not much. Another nice, pleasant spring afternoon in, in New York. How are things in your neck of the world? Yeah, it's sunny. We'll, we'll, we'll give it sunny. We, we like sunny, right? <laughs> so sunny and, and so it's warming up a bit and uh, that's always nice. Uh, I know that you brought Randy on the show today. Why'd you bring Randy on? Yeah, so Randy is the president of the Boulder Group and is one of the leading authorities in the nation on single tenant net lease properties and all the all the trends happening with it. And I think it's it's an interesting time to talk about that sector. It's 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 such a stable part of the business, and and it's I, I just wanted to get some of his insights on where we sit coming out, you know, as we're sort of emerging from this pandemic case. Plus there are some, actually some, uh, a couple of questions around issues that may be affecting, affecting that sector. So I'm really excited to, to talk with, with Randy. So Randy, thank you for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. I'm a long time listener of the common area. So happy to be here today. Well, appreciate that. So yeah, I, I, I did a, you know, did a little intro for you, but if you, if you could just take a second to tell our audience a little more about your background and the company before we dive into the, into the subject. Sure. I'm going to age myself a little bit, you know, got into the business after college in, in 1991, worked for a firm that has since been acquired twice and is now Cushman and Wakefield, but worked there for about six years, you know, kind of took a tenant who we were representing at the time, who is AT&T, did a lot of sale leasebacks and net lease properties with them, kind of took that into starting my own business in 1997 called the Boulder Group, which is a boutique net lease investment sales company based in suburban Chicago. And, you know, we've been kind of doing it every year since. And it's been, you know, it's a, it's a great business. It's become much more institutionalized over the years. You know, it used to just be you were selling single tenant buildings. It wasn't an industry. Now it became... You know, the net lease industry, which is the net lease sector, which is like 10 to 12% of the whole commercial real estate investment sales market, you know, it has its own conferences, it has its own REITs, it's really become, you know, a big part of commercial real estate over the, over the time. And, you know, we've grown with it. So it's been an exciting market to, to a part of the commercial real estate world that's, you know, to some less exciting because it involves less speculation. You know, it's more about conservative investing, usually for people who are at the later stages of their career looking for passive cash flow, you know, as they kind of move towards retirement. So it's not necessarily an exciting part of the, of the commercial real estate market, but it's very much a slow and steady. And, you know, I always say that we're the bond market to the stock market, meaning, right. you know, if you want to take a lot of risk and get a huge return, you know, you should be investing in vacant land or some value ahead. You know, when, when, when you're, when you want to protect that money, perhaps do a temp one exchange, which we'll talk about in a minute, you know, protect that asset and look for steady cash flow. You kind of come towards me towards the second half of your career when you're looking for less risk and look for steady cash flow from, you know, long-term net lease properties to investment grade tenants for the most part. So 
you know, things are going pretty good. Obviously we're bouncing off lows from Q2 of last year when, you know, the sector has did most of the commercial real estate market and most of the world for that matter, stopped here to COVID. It's been, you know, pretty much straight up since that time, since Q2. So I think we were in better shape than most people because, you know, during the, during the downturn, there was still a long-term lease in place. Your tenant was investment grade and, and you received the cash flow. So they did exactly what they were supposed to do in a, in a, in a down market. And I think that's one of the reasons people are, you know, continue to be interested in that sector. Right. So I think, like you said, it, sometimes it's, it's talked to as if it's like a boring part of the business, but that's kind of the point, right? And, and, and to be tested and exactly for these kind of like, I mean, not just a regular kind of recession, but the sort of disruption we had for net lease properties to continue to do what they're supposed to do is a pretty strong endorsement for, for the business model. Yes. The, the, the boring is a feature, not a bug. Right. And, you know, people found it this again, when during the you know transitional period from 2007, 2008, during the financial crisis, they found that to be the same way, which is, you know, this sector, why not exciting and why won't get you skyscraper returns? You know, it's slow and steady and, and will be there as, as fixed income investment. So again, it's, it's more of an alternative to bond investing than it is to, you know, your way for gigantic speculation and gigantic returns. So Right. It's done exactly what it's supposed to do and, and performed you know, great on historically, if you look at the last 20, 25 years. So within that, so that's kind of like the, the big, the, the big picture overarching view. And, and as we, and as he said, that we, we, we got through the recession and, or the, the massive disruption and, and kind of held, held firm are within that though, has anything, have there been any sort of sub trends by some of the property types within the net lease world, you know, like just thinking about fast food versus banks versus, you know, auto dealerships or any, you know, any of this, the various flavors of, or types of properties that are usually structured this way. W- were there any sub trends that, that were interesting or that, that create different sort of investment opportunities right now? Yeah. So, I mean, look, when, when COVID had the second quarter of last year, you know, there was a flight to quality. So everybody went to, you know, investment grade tenants. They didn't want to look, talk about non-investment grade tenants. They went to primary markets. It was a classic flight to quality and people were going to pay premiums for those things and still are to this date. People haven't gone back out on the risk spectrum yet. And they're still looking for long-term leases, new construction, investment grade, primary markets, expanding tenants. But, you know, even within the QSR sector though, there was differentials. I mean, you know, there's t- obviously drive-through became absolutely essential. And if there's double drive through, even the better, you know, you see firms like Chick-fil-A accelerate during the pandemic market share. And, you know, people that didn't have drive throughs and didn't have a good takeout model, you know, a lot of second chair casual dining restaurants, things didn't go so well. <laughs> you know, other tenants who struggled obviously during, during COVID have been, you know, fitness and movie theater obviously were out of favor. And, you know, to this date, people are playing wait and see as far as, far as let's see what their numbers look like, you know, for three to six months after probably now post COVID or post vaccine and before we get back involved in those sectors. So, you know, a lot of the, a lot of the bread and butter staples of least did really well during the pandemic. So if you look at Walmart, if you look at mm-hmm. Walgreens, if you look at CVS, you know, those things were open, essential paid rent, you know, they did great. So people, you know, flocked to them and, and, and they drove retail and industrial to historic low cap rates. I mean, industrial due to, you know, e-commerce acceleration of market share during the, during the COVID pandemic and, you know, an office space slightly out of, 
you know, office net lease, which isn't a huge part of the sector, but a part of the sector, obviously, there's some still, you know, ongoing concerns regarding utilization issues. So people aren't sure if that big headquartered net lease property, what percentage utilization will exist going forward. So, you know, cap rates on that things have not been moving down like industrial and retail have. But like I said, a lot of it also just comes back to the lease itself. So if you've got the credit tenant with the long-term lease, then that's going to be good no matter no matter the, the property type we're talking about. It's going to be good. But then, you know, still people look at, you know, renewal probability down the line, mm-hmm. it's 10 or 15 years. And, you know, if you have a headquarters location and all of a sudden they come back and it's 50% utilized, you right. know, you could expect them to maybe give back some of the floors or part of the building when the lease comes due. So it's always a factor down the road. It doesn't affect right. you in the short term. But it does in the medium to long term. So, like the the amount of time that's left on the lease, and then thinking about like that renewal question that that comes into play. No question. I mean, these things are ultimately you know only as good as you know you can keep getting the tenant to keep paying rent over and over again. They're either one hundred percent you know occupied or one hundred percent vacant. So, right. you know, it's it's obviously renewal is a big question, regardless of where you are in the lease term. In terms of the capital that's chasing these properties now you you made reference to the fact that this is in part of the sector part of the commercial real estate world that's evolved and become more institutional you know we have some big reits on the public publicly traded and the non-traded side that are big players in the sector or other kind of institutions so has that have you seen any any continued um, evolution in that in the past year, any any changes in the in the kind of people that you're talking to who are looking to place money into these kind of properties? Well, yeah, I mean, look on the on the public side, you know, you look you had three, which was kind of amazing, three net lease suites that were managed to go public in 2020, despite COVID, because there's such a strong market for fixed income, and then more recently, you've seen realty incomes, who's the largest net lease rate potential acquisition of BREIT. So obviously there's a lot of things, you know, going on in the sector to change it. And, you know, they're, they're a big part of the sector, mostly in the larger properties, you know, especially as you get to a certain level, you really can only buy things, you know, sometimes down to, you can only buy companies or huge portfolios. You can't buy individual kind of one-off Starbucks, which is, you know, kind of the majority of the market, at least the majority of my side of the market, as far as number of properties, not necessarily dollar volume, you know, and on the, on the private side, you know, but even before COVID, you know, there, there was a macro trend of a large percentage of the seniors in this country who were trying to, who always try to retire on fixed income. And, you know, it's below the ability, what they thought they would have for a fixed income, income because bond yields are so low. So, you know, net lease has proven to be a, you know, a, it's a double or triple the yield of, for instance, the 10-year treasury for a return. So it becomes really compelling to put in people's portfolio who, you know, need, need fixed income in retirement. So very competitive, you know, asset class in that respect. So that leaves their question is, is there enough supply out there for the demand that we're seeing for net lease assets? Not at the moment, especially okay. in the higher quality properties. I mean, look, there was, there was a lack of new construction last year because obviously COVID, most tenants, you know, move their, move their expansion and roll up plans down the road a year or two because it's hard to expand in the middle of a pandemic. And, you know, this year that people are, are fighting, you know, construction costs going up and making rents, you know, difficult for a lot of the, the lower tier tenants to swallow. So, you know, that has an impact as well. So the, the lack of new development is certainly hurting the market as far as supply. You know, the hope is that there's the driving, other driving factors, which is, look, at a certain point, people think interest rates are going to go up. And when they do go up, 
a lot more sale leasebacks will happen because people mm. will be okay locking in higher interest rates and they haven't felt the urgency to do that for the last few years. So, you know, the, A, there's a potential of a lot of more own company-owned property coming on the sale leaseback market. That's hope one. Um, and trend number two, which I think it is in place, but will take a while to play out is, you know, as people are starting to leave and close malls, especially second tier ones, mm-hmm. you're going to see a lot of tenants look for freestanding locations. You're already seeing, you know, some of the A players in the malls, such as Apple, Lululemon, the Gap, Sephora, you know, leave the enclosed malls and move to freestanding locations. And that trend is only accelerating as enclosed malls deteriorate. So that's kind of a positive trend for freestanding, at least, and kind of a negative one for enclosed malls, which has been, you know, going on for a while now. But tenants are finally at the point where the mall traffic is so low that they really want to have the freestanding capability. And even some of them want drive through for pickup or or, or other reasons. So, you know, there's a lot of things on the freestanding side from visibility, from convenience that, you know, are going to drive a lot of people into freestanding buildings in the next few years. Hmm. Interesting. And then you, you did make some reference to this, this question around construction costs and how, how is that? So is that making it, so is it just making it difficult for, for deals to pencil out? So let's say you're, you're in a, in a script center, you're, you're a tenant like Jimmy John's or someone of that nature, you know, I mean, they, they have certain amount of volume that they do. And, you know, when they go to price a, a new, when they go tell a developer, they want to go have a freestanding location and get out of the strip center for some more visibility. You know, they, they look at the price of, of, of rents and obviously developer looks at the input cost and as input costs continue to rise, you know, they have to, they have to, to make their profit margin, have to charge the tenant a certain percent. And those rents become very difficult to, to go to, especially as, you know, you're competing with them staying in a strip center. So, you know, it's, it's costing you going up. Some of the tenants just can't afford the, the leap to freestanding, which is where a lot of them want to be. I mean, you've seen, you know, a lot of Starbucks and Dunkin' Donuts and Panera, you know, come out of these strip centers and move to freestanding. And I think a lot of people want to follow them, especially people that don't have drive-throughs. Even if you don't have a drive-through model, you may just want it for, not for customers, but for, for DoorDash or Uber Eats or something of that nature. Right. So, you know, everybody wants a drive-through, everybody wants the visibility. But there's a point where in construction costs, it doesn't make sense for, you know, the rents just don't make sense to, to move to that model. You know, they can handle a slightly higher rental costs, but not significantly higher. So, you know, that's an issue is that may delay new development, you know, for the next six months or so. Interesting. Yeah. I mean, that, that whole, the, you mentioned this a couple of times, but this, the, the way that some of the drive-through concepts that were necessitated by, or just influent, you know, influenced by our behaviors under pandemic where we did more of that or or like i think there are a number of restaurants now that that have set up dedicated parts of their stores or locations f- just for the for the pickup for the third party delivery apps and all those things to kind of come through so it is it is kind of interesting what that then means for their ultimate real estate needs, but also like why that would make a freestanding location so appealing so they could have their parking, so they could have their potentially multiple drive-throughs, multiple lanes. So that, that does seem like a very interesting driver for going forward for the for the demand for having like a freestanding location. Yeah, there's no question. I mean, I think ideally everybody would want one for the customers and one for the third-party services. Drive lanes, I mean, look, it's difficult to get zoning for them. It's difficult to have the room for them. And, you know, most models going forward, I think are going to have a smaller eat-in dining portion. And this double drive-through concept is going to become fairly standard, which means a lot of people 
you know, footprints will change. And a lot of people are going to try very hard to, you know, leave these strip centers so that they can get, you know, that future business model. Because I think, you know, the third party services, even though they're expensive, I think they become ingrained and they're certainly convenient <laughs> in, in people's behavior. And I think that's, you know, not, not a model that's going to give back that much market share after COVID. We have this, you know, President Biden has put forward some proposals on changing the tax code to help pay for some of the, you know, the plans around infrastructure and jobs and, and, and the other things. And that has pointedly included this proposal around changing the way like-kind exchanges are taxed, as well as, you know, stuff around capital, like potentially tweaking the capital gains rate and potentially changing the way private equity, carried interest is taxed. And these are all red flags for real estate and especially the 1031 exchange is a red flag for a net lease. So, I mean, it seems like clear that this would have effects, but I guess one of the questions is, I mean, it's self-evident that raising the tax rate or changing the way that like-kind exchanges or tax would have an effect on net lease. My question is more what, you know, can be done about that? Is is there, I know that there's some effort to try to communicate back to legislators and to the, and to the administration around maybe better understanding the benefit and the thresholds that they're talking about. And also like just even the likelihood of something like this being able to pass given how tight the margins are. So I don't know what, I just kind of threw a ton of stuff at you with about this question, but just really curious to hear your thoughts, given your position in the market. Yeah, I'll try to get to it. It's probably an eight part question as the way, <laughs> yeah. you, as the way you asked it, but nonetheless, there's a lot of issues involved. Look, the 1031 exchange issue is probably the majority number one issue that is in the net lease market today for a few reasons. You know, one, the net lease market, while the majority of the market, commercial real estate, 10 or 15% of the properties are involved in 1031 exchanges. In the net lease market, it's closer to 60%. So it would be a dramatic negative effect on the net lease market if the 1031 exchange provision gets eliminated, which is the current um, offer on the table. Let's, let's talk about a few parts of it. You know, one, I think elimination, why certainly on the table and certainly not at zero risk, is a low risk. I think that modification is, is more likely where they're hoping to end up. And modification can look at anything from that $500,000 threshold or maybe a higher threshold. Mm -hmm. You know, I've also heard some proposals of limiting them to one or two a year as far as maximum you can do, or once on once per property. <laughs> once you do it, your individual property trade into, you can't secondly trade out of it again. So again, there's a lot of minor, there's a lot of modifications, some minor, some major, that, you know, proposals that are on the table. And again, there's no consensus yet as to what the actual bill will look like because it hasn't actually shown up on any, you know, Congress right. floor at the moment. Yeah, um, I think, yeah, I mean, just like, to be clear, all we have is the, I, as far as I'm aware of, the only thing that we have is what was posted to his website, which is more or less just like, kind of like, I, it, that's not a, that's not a bill. That's just, no, here are bill, some things it, I would like to do. <laughs> he certainly put it in his agenda. He certainly put it in an outline. And it's certainly something that kind of, was a wake up call from people who were, you know, not taking this as seriously to everyone seems to be on high alert at the moment. So, mm -hmm. you know, high alert isn't enough. I mean, look, the, the ram of the, the knock on the 1031 exchange is it's, it's a vehicle for wealthy people to not pay taxes. And why some of that's true, that's not the whole truth. The truth is it's a deferral vehicle and 88% of the people end up paying ultimately on those properties. And again, I think people too nearly look at, at the individuals who are buying the properties and again, you know, some of them are high net worth individuals, but the reality is the market, which is commercial real estate, some of the services that have done, looked into this, have said, 
it could be a 10 or 15% reduction in commercial real estate values across the board. Mm. And then you need to step back and say, well, who does that affect? And so the answer goes, the biggest you know, lenders and investors in commercial real estate are REITs who are owned by individuals, pension funds who are, <laughs> who are obviously you know, individuals, and then you know, the stock market, and you have you know, banks and insurance companies. Again, all these are gonna filter down to individuals. So people who may not be paying directly will be paying in an indirect fashion as those values go down for your pension, whatever, you know, the individuals end up feeling the impact of it. Also, you know, you, you lose a lot of fees. So again, it impacts brokers, it impacts title agents, it impacts real estate attorneys, it impacts local municipalities who there were less property sold, less transfer taxes. And so then you're gonna have, you know, local municipalities collecting less income. So there's kind of far reaching, you know, collateral effects of this right. that I think people are beginning to, you know, figure out and get through. And, you know, I think when they do it, they're, why, why there might be some modifications of it or a phasing in over time or something of that nature. I think elimination will probably get off the table if people really dig down and understand this. And, you know, the commercial real estate industry, why slightly, you know, not taking it that seriously until, you know, very few weeks ago when it's been discussed for the last six months and, you know, elimination or change of 10th one has been, you know, discussed for the last 20 years, every single year. I've heard about it. It's never gotten as far as it has today. And so, you know, People say, well, what can we do to strike back? And so the answer is, look, you need to contact and today, not wait or not wait for somebody else to do it. People need to reach out to their congressmen today, let them know they, they want this to move forward. We have some information. You know, a lot of different organizations have all rallied together in the coalition, everyone from the National Association of Realtors to the Real Estate Roundtable, you know, Urban Land Institute, NAAP, all, all the major commercial real estate organizations and some residential ones as well have kind of formed a coalition and are actively moving things forward. So it should be very easy for people to find information online. And you know, a lot of things have forms where you can just click a button, put your address in and, and contact your congressman. And I advise everyone to get into the fight now, take it seriously and start the advocacy effort because you know, this is a battle that requires you know, a lot of time and effort to you know, counter the forces who you know, won't review the 1031 individually. It'll just get caught up in a broad brush tax reform bill. And that's what we need to avoid. Right. And yeah, I think like you said, there's been over 30 of the industry groups got together, have sent letters on this previously. And I did see that, I think it's like 1031taxreform.com or something, or. That's one uh, of the main, that's one of the main one, ones. Again, National Association of Realtors has one as well. Mm -hmm. There's a different one called Save the 1031 Exchange at Org. There's a few different websites. If you just type, you know, Save 1031 or Preserve 1031 or you know, if you go to the Boulder Group social media, you'll see a lot of our advocacy <laughs> efforts towards preserving 1031 exchanges. So it's a live issue, but yeah, the, the, it's, it's, it's a live issue. I mean, he brought it up originally, I think last July when he was on the campaign trail, then it just like didn't appear in any any of his proposals until now, but we did, you know, but this is, like you said, this did not come out of the blue. It's something that's come up periodically and it came, it came up very specifically during the campaign trail. So. It does seem like the industry has now responded. Yeah. They've gone from complacency to understanding the seriousness of it. You know, when, when someone mentions it by name and speaks about it multiple times, and when it starts as a campaign promise, I think a lot of people thought, like most politicians, you know, a lot of things get said in the campaign promises right. and, you know, action doesn't necessarily follow. But, you know, when, he, when, he's re, when it's been, you know, brought up in his new outline and discussed more recently, I think people have decided that we need to take this more seriously and really start, you know, fighting back and educating the public regarding this, because I think if people don't do enough 
there, there is a chance it continues to move forward. So, you know, right now, which is before anything's on the table and why, why everyone's still discussing it and why lobbyists are meeting with congressmen and things of that nature, you know, now is the time to get people out there, you know, do what you can, post, contact your congressman, you know, advocate, advocate the issue wherever you can. So, you know, I think this is very bad should it actually get past verbatim as elimination of temporary exchange. I think it would dramatically change the commercial real estate market and that valuation would hurt everybody. Right. Yeah. So this is definitely a big deal. This is a big deal. <laughs> it's a big deal. And people are, are waking up to more and more every day that you know, the complacency or again, everyone else, someone, everyone thinks everybody else is doing something to stop it. That'll automatically go away. Again, this is the, kind of the worst case scenario, which is usually when it was been attacked in the past, it's been attacked on an individual basis. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you could start the education fight one-on-one, -on -one, but this is caught up in a larger tax bill in, in an environment where people don't necessarily dig into the details. It just sounds like another, you know, on a negative, how it's being perceived as a, you know, a tax loophole for wealthy Americans. And it's kind of caught up in other tax loopholes for wealthy Americans. And I think that we need to remove it from that conversation to have its own conversation regarding 1031. And luckily, unlike, you know, hedge funds and other things and carried interest, most people understand the, the keeping real estate values high is to their benefit because, you know, through home ownership or other, other factors, it's more, it rings closer to home for the average individual. Right. Yeah. It just seems like one of those, like the classic example of unintended consequences, like where there's this idea that may start in a good place, which is, you know, or, I mean, that's what about we may start like in a good intentioned place of like all right we need to look at the way people may be trying to evade or defer tax do something with their tax you know certain people may be doing something with their taxes which we don't like which we want to address but then like you said the reality is on this particular measure is that it's got such more wide-ranging application and will end up affecting not the people that that you're the people who may be writing the law are thinking about yeah unfortunately there's unintended consequences to everything and again yeah. i'm an incrementalist by nature so even if you were going to make modifications or or you know unfortunately eliminate it or something of that drastic nature that people don't respond very well to things that happen uh randomly and quickly i i think it would have to be you know a phase in over a number of years or hopefully just minor modifications around the edges. So, you know, again, I don't, I don't think it has to be an all or nothing type of thing either. You know, we keep it as is or it just goes away. I think there's a lot of middle ground to be met in the middle. And again, I think we just need to, the commercial real estate and, and residential real estate entries need to come together and, and, you know, figure out where middle ground exists on this thing. Well, aside from, from this issue, are there any um, other market highlights that we should touch base on? Well, look, I think another, you know, another buzz topic at the moment is inflation because mm -hmm. obviously these are fixed income vehicles. They're, they're long-term leases. A lot of them um, don't have a lot of rent escalations or at least enough to keep up with the, the high rate of inflation. So like any fixed income asset or any long-term bond, you know, long-term lease is, is fixed income at the end of the day. And, you know, whether there is or isn't inflation or the extent of it at the moment is kind of the great debate. Obviously, if you think that, you know, there's great inflation moving forward, this is probably not, this is an asset class that will underperform if, uh, on, on, on times of hyperinflation. You know, a few leases have CPI increases in them, but the majority do not. Mm -hmm. So it will underperform if there's, if there's a spike in inflation in the next few years. And, you know, people think with the amount of money that's been, you know, printed in the U.S. still not being that physically prudent, 
that you know inflation will start to run up, and we've seen it in in lumber and a few other sectors recently. So you know that that's the great debate that everyone's paying a lot of attention to. So I think a lot of people either a locking into long term financing, you know, or b you know adjusting their portfolio accordingly, whether it's disposition or 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 however repositioning it to you know stare at this inflation question. Right. I mean, I think it's still possible that there's a lot of noise in this data. I mean, we don't really, you know, we're coming out of pandemic. We're coming out of stops and starts and things. And I don't know. I think it's good. But I guess that's like how you, you know, how you play it right now is going to going to mean a lot. Whether, But I don't think anybody really knows at the end of the day what what we're going to. If, I mean, if we knew that, then we would know exactly how to structure the deals. But it seems to me like it's like this risk is something to be aware of. But we, but there may be some overreaction to some of the short-term numbers. But I don't know. That's just my my, my feeling. Yeah. Again, you can speculate on all sides of it. I hear all kinds of people who pontificate about interest rates who've been wrong for about twenty years in a row right. as they've continued to go lower and 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 you know inflation numbers have been off as well. So, look, it could be a false start. It could be you know what happens after six months after a pandemic. People don't really have a playbook for you know post-pandemic numbers and when they return to normal. So again, a lot of speculation on both sides of it. I just think it's something to pay close attention to. And I agree with you at this point, it's just too hard to tell exactly how how real or sustainable it is and and whatnot. But for the moment, I think it's, you know, something people are starting to pay a lot more closer attention to. Yeah, I guess it's it's hard to look back at the 1918 flu pandemic and figure out coming out of that, what lessons we have for our current market. Yeah, things are slightly different now. And again, there's no direct parallel to post-pandemic, you know, America in the modern century. So, you know, everyone's kind of creating their own playbook as we go here. Yeah. All right. Well, I've taken up a good amount of your time here. So I appreciate you coming on the the episode. I'm just glad any, and for, for talking through all this stuff with me. Thanks for having me again. I think it's an interesting time in the net lease and wider commercial real estate market as a whole. And, uh, you know, I'll be continuing to look at the, to the common area for insights in other sectors as well. Well, thank you for that. And and how can folks, if they don't know how to find you already, what's the best way to, to, to track you down? You can look me up on LinkedIn or you can go to the Boulder Group's website and our contact information is readily available. And happy to talk to people, especially if they want to talk about 10th Annual Exchange Advocacy efforts. You know, we're very happy to get involved in that fight. Right. Oh, sorry. And one of the things I wanted to mention too was I always, you, I mean, I've been covering this industry for almost or for over 20 years, I forget now. So I'm around there. And I've, you know, as for almost as, as long as I can remember, I've been looking at the Boulder Group's reports and look, and, and the stuff that you've put out around cap rates and what's going on with the sector. So it's just, those are great too. So I, if, if, if folks are just looking for regular good reports on what's happening in the industry, I, I definitely recommend checking those out. I appreciate the commentary, but I'm not so sure I appreciate you aging us both. <laughs> <laughs> Guys, this has been fantastic. Randy, just one more time. The 1031 exchange is a big deal, especially for all of those that it's going to affect or it could affect in the future. Can you give the website one more time for the Boulder Group so people can get to it and and learn more? Sure. It's bouldergroup.com. Go to research or reach out to any one of us on the contact page because we can give you the links to the contact Congress short forms or, you know, some of the information packages and some of it we have posted on people who are advocating for 1031, 1031 MIS, 1031 FACTS, and just basic background information about it. So, you know, come visit our website or reach out to us and we'll we'll walk you through 1031 efforts that are ongoing. Fantastic. Thank you, Randy, so much for being here. David, any closing thoughts for today? 
Nope. Just thanks again to our listeners. And um, I got some great response last time. I did a little kind of shout out for ideas for guests and episodes and I got some nice feedback. So nice. I appreciate that and keep that coming um, as well for, for anyone else who may want to reach out david.bodemer at informa.com. Absolutely. Again, Randy, thank you so much for being on the show, David. Of course, thank you for facilitating this and bringing Randy on the show. And our last thank you, as David said, goes to you, the listening audience. Thank you so much for tuning in and listening to the commentary podcast with David Bodemer. If you have not subscribed to the podcast yet, please click the subscribe now button below. This way, when David comes out with a new podcast, it'll show up directly on your listening device. This makes it much easier to share these podcasts with your colleagues. Again, thanks for listening today. For everyone at WMRE, this is Eric Johnson inviting you back in two weeks for all the stories that matter to you. We'll talk to you soon. Thank you for listening to the Common Area Podcast. Click the subscribe button below to be notified when new episodes become available. The information covered and posted represents the views and opinions of the guests and does not necessarily represent the views or opinions of WMRE or Informa. The content has been made available for informational and educational purposes only. Today's podcast was brought to you by Ryan, liberating our clients from the burden of being overtaxed, freeing their capital to invest, grow, and thrive.